Hello, and welcome again to another episode of Five Plain Questions, a podcast that proposes five questions to Indigenous artists, creators, musicians, writers, movers and shakers, and culture bears, people in the community that are doing great things for their communities. I'm Joe Williams, your host for this conversation. I'm director of the Indigenous Arts Programs at the Plains Art Museum. My goal is to showcase these amazing people in our Indigenous communities from around the region and country. I want to introduce you to Wendy Restar. Raised on the Apsalaga Crow Reservation in Montana, Wendy Redstar's work is informed both by her cultural heritage and her engagement with many forms of creative expression, including photography, sculpture, video, fiber arts, and performance. An avid researcher of archives and historical narratives, Redstar seeks to incorporate and recast her research, offering new and unexpected perspectives in work that is at once inquisitive, witty, and unsettling. Ritzar holds a BFA from Montana State University in Bozeman and an MFA in Sculpture from the University of California, Los Angeles. She lives and works in Portland, Oregon. This interview is a long time coming and I'm really excited about this, this conversation. So with that said, let's jump into this conversation with Wendy Redstar. Wendy Redstar, thank you so much for joining us at Five Plain Questions. It's really great to have you here. Thank you for having me. Uh, would you be able to introduce yourself, uh, share with us your background, where you're from, and what it is that you do? Yeah. So my name is Wendy Redstar. I'm originally from Montana. I grew up on the Crow Indian Reservation. I, uh, My dad's Crow, my mom's white. I'm uh, part of the Pagan clan, which I'm very proud of. We're known as the Treacherous clan. So that's pretty cool. Uh, I went to undergrad at Montana State University in Bozeman, which is like about a three-hour drive away from uh, the Crow Reservation. And then I went to grad school at UCLA and then found myself in Portland, Oregon, where I'm based now. Right on. I know we're going to talk a little bit about your um, your time in college in a little bit. Um but uh, just out of curiosity, what's, uh, what was the draw for you to go to UCLA? And where were you at at that time? It's kind of a funny story because uh, I, my passion before I really found the arts was horses. Um, and my dad had a little herd of horses. And um, that was kind of our major bonding that we, we did was over horses and um, I wanted to be like a horse trainer. So um, I went to MSU and I brought some of my horses um, and then I graduated and I thought, great, I got that over with. Now I can like go be a horse trainer. But my mom really wanted me to get a graduate degree. <laughs> and uh, she said, I'm just worried, you know, if you come back home that, you know, you might not have the motivation to go back in, into school. And I think she was kind of right about that. Um, so my plan was like, I'll just apply to all the top sculpture, sculpture programs uh, and hope that I don't get in <laughs> so that I can like just uh, go and be with my horses. Um, and to my surprise, I ended up getting into uh, UCLA and it was great. It was a really good choice. Um, I had a, a choice between going to the East Coast or the West Coast. 
And my dad said, you need to go to California. And I was like, why do you say that? What's your interest? Oh, it's just better than the East Coast. But he was a Marine. So he he did his uh, um, boot camp and stuff in California. So he had knowledge of it. But I'm, I'm really happy I, I stayed on the West Coast. And I think for me, graduate school, what was the most important thing that came out of that was the connections with peers. Um, and I still have some pretty strong um, bonds with uh, some of my friends that I went to school with at UCLA. Hmm. I, I, that's great. As so yeah, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't very focused, you know, <laughs> focused <laughs> on failure uh, to not get in. Right on. Well, uh, in this case, I'm, I'm happy it did not work out for you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so now, you know, you're, you're up in the, the, uh, upper Northwest. Um, how, how are you, um, without the horses now, or how do you, uh, manage, um, sort of the new life then in a sense? Yeah. You know, horses for me, uh, because I, I would say I was almost raised by horses. Part of what happened when I was growing up is my dad got my grandfather's land out of a uh, white uh, lease, out of uh, some white ranchers that were in the area. They had leased the land for over 50 years. And so much so that they, they almost thought that was their land. So when he got it out, he uh, was really busy trying to, he wanted to uh, ranch and farm the land. And so he would spend like eight hours on the tractor. And what he would do was let me hang out with horses all day. So it was basically babysat <laughs> by horses, which is um, kind of wild, but uh, uh so I would just spend time with the herd and then riding all over and um, I'd be opening up gates and then I would try to like, we, may, we had a system where I'd open up these gates and ride up towards the mountain, but I wasn't strong enough to put them back. These are uh, fenced gates. And so I'd, I'd have a little loop. He put loops on, uh, rope loops. And then at, when he was done, we would drive around and shut all the gates. So I think for me, actually, horses were my friends. Um, they also like solidified my passion for nature and being out in nature and finding comfort in nature. Uh, so not having horses, I think, has been a big adjustment. And I think what sort of filled the void of not having horses is having art. And the art has sort of um, sort of helped replace that. And there's this interesting connection when, whenever I'm sort of stuck or need to generate ideas, I go out in nature and take long walks. And then I start thinking. And I think it's kind of when I was a kid, I was alone a lot and had like a really a, a vivid, imaginative world. And... Um, so I think that's sort of what's helped me sort of kind of bridge that 
that gap of not having horses. And all the artwork really is a reflection of home. Looking at at your your list of exhibitions that you've been a part of, I mean, you've been going strong uh, for uh, <laughs> 15 plus years now. Yes. Uh, there's a work that I made in grad school. Um, it's called The Four Seasons. And I made that in 2006. It's me and my traditional regalia and these uh, dioramas focused on each season. And that work has been such a gift for me and my career and mm-hmm. that it's a very powerful work. At that time, I, I was thinking about how institutions um, hold and display native material objects, native bodies. And what's happened with that work is it's sort of kind of, well, not sort of, it's continued to kind of march on without me. Mm-hmm. And I found, you know, in times where I've been sort of um, feeling like I'm stuck, that work isn't stuck and it will be showing at different places. And I, I think of it as its own entity. And I've had a complicated relationship with it. Like, I think early on when I got out of grad school, I was really worried that everybody would just want me to make the four seasons over and over again, Uh, or it got so much attention. And now, you know, the relationship with that work is it's just, it's, it's like an ambassador. And at one point, I think in 2016, it was showing at eight different institutions at the same time. Yeah. And and it's traveled more places than I've ever traveled. Um, and so that's been kind of really helpful in kind of keeping my career steady. Yeah. Um, admittedly, uh, that series is what I first noticed about your work. And I think like everyone else, just blown away uh, by what I was looking at. And ultimately, um, it led to, uh, within our, um, we just recently had an exhibition called Crow Shadow, um, okay. uh, one on Nishinayepi. And um, when I saw that uh, you have work, or you have work in their collection, uh, we absolutely needed to have something from, from you in there. And I was really pleased to see that uh, your more recent works have for the lack of a better term evolved, right. It's, it's changed and it's, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's always good to see artists trying new things, moving in different directions and not recre- recreating the same things over and over and over again. And yeah. 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 But yeah, I think that's kind of what was a challenge for me in the beginning is that sort of every new work, every new body of work is a different and an unknown challenge. And so I was, it, I was worried that, oh, these new things I'm trying um, won't be successful or won't carry me through because of this like very powerful work that I, I made mm-hmm. when I was just in grad school. Yeah, it's, I, th- I think what really spoke to me, uh, apart from, <laughs> apart from your, your, your advanced technical abilities is just the anticipation 
the authenticity of what you were saying in your piece. Cause I grew up on a reservation. I'm from Sisseton and um, I was able to see what you were talking about and sort of get it, you know, and mm-hmm. that's, that's something I think is so important from, uh, from coming from uh, my community or our communities. Yes. I, and I really appreciate hearing that because oftentimes, you know, I'm talking to non-native people and I, I'm always like, well, you know, Native people see a whole different layer to this work than non-Native people. And that's really important to me. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, that being the case then, uh, who and what are your biggest influences? That's such a hard question, right? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I'd have to say my ancestors are such a huge uh, and rich inspiration. I draw a lot of uh, um, resources and things like that from just um, looking towards archives and, you know, trying to piece together timelines of our history. So that's, that's a huge inspiration for me. Uh, I would say I as far as like contemporary art right now, I'm really into Doho So. He's this Korean artist and he's a sculptor and he makes these amazing fabric places of um, basically places where he's lived out of fabric. Like he'll recreate rooms or whole houses. Um, And I just, I'm really liking his, his work currently. So those are two. And then, and then I have peers. I do a studio exchange with uh, two women artists, um, Saya Wolflock and Paula Wilson. And that's been really kind of amazing. We, we have very different practices, but we come together virtually and sort of exchange, you know, what's going on with our practices. And that's something that's been, um, really inspiring as well. Oh, that's great. Yeah. It's, it's, um, yeah, those in our community and those who, uh, we, we work with in a sense, uh, yeah, have great, uh, take up great space in our lives for sure. Uh, let's, let's talk about your career, um, both college and post-college. Uh, you had mentioned about, uh, sort of the network that you had developed in grad school. Um, yeah, if, if you could, uh, sort of, talk us through that experience and then um, since then? Yeah, I guess we'll start with high school. So um, I don't know what it was like for you on your reservation, but I I ended up going to uh, a school that was just a border town school. It was um, actually hard. It's hard in Montana, which was part of the reservation, but then got incorporated. So it was a mix of crow kids and rancher kids and mixed kids like myself. Um, But when I was applying to um, college, the one thing that I wish I would have had was scholarships for the arts, especially for uh, Native kids. I think all of our communities are um, very visual and and we're really talented and creating. uh, So that's one thing 
you know, I think if I think about my legacy, that's that's definitely one thing I'd like to leave behind is a scholarship that would help high school students because you're always told not to, <laughs> not to uh, apply um, in the arts because you're not going to make any money. So there's a lot of like for math and science support for Native students, but not so much in the arts, which does, doesn't make any sense to me. Art is very important for Native communities. Um, so, yeah, I think something that was kind of worked out nicely for me and my situation was in undergrad, I, I majored in sculpture. And at MSU Bozeman, they really focused on craft, like uh, being able to weld, um, being able to use the wood tools. Uh, one sculpture class, if you could polish your wood the shiniest, you were guaranteed an A, <laughs> you know, <laughs> things like that. And, and, um, and I used to kind of get upset because there are people who are technically just really good at craft, but their work doesn't, isn't really interesting. Um, but they tended to be kind of the superstars. Um, and so that was sort of one of my frustrations in undergrad. And then going to grad school, that w I would say was really my first real strong connection with contemporary art and, uh, and understanding contemporary art. And it was sort of a steep climb for me. And I felt a lot of my peers um, had a, a great foundation of knowing contemporary art, contemporary art history. Um, so that it was helpful to have students who knew sort of more things about contemporary art. And just the fact that you could go, you know, on weekends to different shows and go to different galleries and just have all that sort of access was really important to me. But at UCLA, they really focused on ideas and concepts so the aesthetic part um, wasn't so much uh, the focus, but conceptually what, uh, what the work was about was important. So for me, I felt really privileged to have sort of both of those as uh, toolkits for my practice. Um, and then the other thing about UCLA is that they have very famous artists as professors. Um, and for the most part, that was cool. <laughs> and, and we also had like, uh, they had a great visiting artist program too. So you'd meet like Matthew Barney, which was crazy, or Mark Bradford would come in. And that was really important to be able to talk to these artists that you just feel like, you know, you could never attain their status, um, but then to meet them, see that they're human and they're real people. Um, but I think what I, like I said, what was more important to me was just being around other people my age that were really focused on being artists. And I think grad school was the first time that I got to like dip into that swimming pool of just being around people who were dedicated and focused and really believed that that is a path that they could take. Yeah. And I think you're, you're one of the few, maybe native American artists who, uh, showed, um, you're part of exhibitions, like your first three exhibitions, all international, 
exhibitions, right? Uh, you were in Paris and London. Um, how how did those opportunities, uh, uh, I guess, uh, manifest themselves with you? Um, the Paris one was really awesome. So that was when I was in grad school, and uh, Nancy Rubens, she's an amazing uh, artist who does these massive, large-scale sculptures, usually made out of found objects. She was a professor of mine during like my first quarter at UCLA. And she was just very supportive, took me under her wing. Um, she always wear like this red lipstick. <laughs> I just we were always kind of like, that was like her signature. Um, but she's like a tiny person. So it was really cool to see this artist with this small body be able to create these huge, massive sculptures. Um, so she invited me to uh, be in a group exhibition um, at the Cartier Foundation in Paris. Um, and that whole show focused on um, artists that had previously previously had solo shows or uh, exhibitions at that institution. Um, they reached out to them to then bring in a younger artist um, that they would sort of be their mentor for that exhibition. Um, and I really didn't, I knew it was really cool, but I had no idea how cool that experience was. Um, it was the first time, like for instance, they help pay for production funds. Like they help pay for the prints in the mounting and then they paid for the shipping over there. Um, and then they flew me over and a couple of my friends came with me as well. And then I was there to, you know, kind of instruct a little bit of how I wanted the work to be hung. Um, the, the place was super impressive. Um, and then they had an opening <laughs> And so a lot of the, the artists that sort of mentored or sponsored um, the younger artists came to the opening. So there was like Nan Golden and, um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, if I think about it, I'll, I'll probably think about it tonight. In the middle of the <laughs> night, I'll wake up. <laughs> I'll be like, this person... <laughs> Um, Wolfgang Tillmans was one of the artists there. So it was just like, whoa, there, there are these other artists here. And it was, they opened it up to the rooftop. So we're up there um, and you could see the Eiffel Tower sparkling. And I was like, this is it. This is, a, this is it. I, my career's done now. <laughs> you know, like I'm never going to get anything as awesome as this ever again. Um, and Nancy couldn't come because she had a solo exhibition she was installing in in the town of Nancy, France, which is kind of funny. But she invited us over to see, j just to see her. And so we got to walk around uh, her installing of the exhibition. And she took us to a restaurant and we ate all these different cheeses and tried these different wines. And I was like, this is amazing. This is this is her life. This is like <laughs> what she does. Um, so it was just super impactful experience for me. It, it showed me a window into what 
it could be like, uh, or a, a version of what some artists get to experience. Um, this is totally wild. Yeah, well, absolutely. But, um, you know, looking at your career, uh, you've that, well, that is certainly a high point and a strong place to start. Um, you've done very well over the years. Thank you. You know what? I'm an incredibly hard worker. Um, my parents really raised me to be that way. I, you know, in high school, I worked at the veterinary, local veterinary clinic. I was like the janitor and would clean up surgery areas and, and all of that. And I, it was just instilled to me um, to be a hard worker. And I paid for my college and grad school um, and my own rent and all of that. Um, so I think it's just one of the things that has been really helpful as an artist. I think a lot of times people think artists just sort of float around <laughs> and are irresponsible. But what I found the artists that are successful is that they, they do really put a lot of work into what they do. So I think in my case, maybe it's a little bit too much because, <laughs> you know, it's a path of a burnout, <laughs> you know, yeah. but as, you know, as a single mom, I think that's one of the things that I think has been really helpful to, to keep me sustained is that I do work really hard and have continued to try to, you know, make opportunities for myself. Um, I'm one of those people who, if I say I'm going to do something, I have to do it. I can never just say it and not not ever do it. Yeah. Um, so I have to be very careful if I say yes to something. <laughs> I can appreciate that. No, that's great. Uh, but that does lead us into uh, the question about opportunities. Um, mm -hmm. How how have they presented themselves to you, and how have you made opportunities for yourself? That's a great question. Um, it's something that you know they don't really talk to you in uh, school. I think they're more focused on if you can actually make art <laughs> and then instead of that, you might actually uh, have a, a career out of it and then what to do. And I think it's definitely really important, but it could also weigh people down to think about that whole other aspect. So I think, you know, when you see artists that are um, out there that are successful, there's a whole situation happening behind them that you're not aware of. And it can be quite fascinating, quite a production. Um, so for me, right after grad school, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I know a lot of my friends were gonna stay in LA. Um, we're gonna try to find whatever job they could. Some were gonna try to go into teaching. Some were gonna work for other artists as studio assistants. A lot of them became um, like, uh, in, they would install exhibitions. And for me, I decided I would uh, apply to artist residencies. So that's one thing I did. And the type of artist residencies I was looking for were places that uh, um, gave you a place to live. And if they gave you some money on top of that, that was awesome. Those were pretty hard to get. And then a studio space. And so that was sort of the plan going out that I would just try to ride this artist residency wave. Um, and then I think what really helped me out is because my career has been 
most of my exhibitions have been in museum spaces, university museums or galleries, uh, nonprofit uh, spaces, and I've also um, I've also done a lot of lecturing, and I've had friends who've had more of a sort of commercial gallery um, experience and asked me, well, how'd you get into the university lectures system? And so actually what I think what happened was I was invited um, by a professor to have an exhibition at a university. And then from there, you know, if you do a good job, a lot of times museums, they're not like commercial gallery shows. A museum wants to do programming um, and education. So oftentimes not only will you have an exhibition, but you'll also have an opportunity to maybe do a lecture or maybe to do some public programming. And so then there's money coming from those. And um, it just sort of started to continue on. Like other professors would talk to other professors. And um, I really want to thank all of them for doing that. And, and um, but it, yeah, so my career kind of started that way. And now I feel like it's switching a little bit um, to showing more in galleries, doing some public art, which is new to me. Um, but basically, yeah, just sort of kind of caught on and went that direction. I think that your, your description of the museum experience is spot on. Um, you know, I, I work in a museum that's the sponsor of this program. Um, but yeah, uh, the lecture and, and, and the workshops, um, I think it's really great for uh, young listeners looking to get into the arts to, to understand that there is a difference between showing in a museum and showing in a, a public art gallery. Um, there are two different types of expectations from that experience. There definitely is. It's, uh, my gallerist was saying, you know, Wendy, when you say yes to like an exhibition at an institution, um, it's not just a, a yes to showing, it's a yes to several other things that happen. Um, <laughs> and, and she's like, it just makes you so busy, you know, where versus some of the other people she re represents are strictly just showing in galleries where, you know, they might go to the opening, they mm -hmm. might do some sort of talk, but it's usually not the norm. Um, mm -hmm. But definitely if you're in a, especially if you have like a solo exhibition, they're definitely going to want to, do a lot of programming around um, your exhibition. And that's, that's sort of the challenge uh, at the museum being on staff is trying to uh, quell expectations from, you know, half a dozen different uh, department leads saying, well, then yeah. we're going to, we're going to get them to do this and we're going to get them to do that, you know, and pretty soon, uh, you know, the, the artist <laughs> who signed up for an exhibition suddenly finds themselves as a, as a part-time staff person, it feels. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think for me, um, administ the administrative side of my practice is robust and mm -hmm. it got to a point where I just couldn't do it anymore. Um, I couldn't keep up. I was finding my emails would start with pardon the delay <laughs> way, way too much. <laughs> and so, um, I hired uh, a, like a administrative studio assistant to help me out. And I've gotten feedback that the, it's been really great that uh, at least people uh, she'll respond to them, let them know that we've got their email and that um, we're aware of it. 
And they said, it's just so nice just to get like that you've gotten the email and that you're going to address it later. But um, Mm -hmm. yeah, definitely. It's sort of, I've gotten to that stage where just the administrative side I, I need help with. And that's, that's a great way of, of doing things, you know, making space for yourself, but also just being able to give yourself a break from uh, the vast amount of work that's, that's coming your way. Yeah, definitely. So with that said, uh, what would you say to the 18 to 22 year old that's listening to this conversation? Um, I would say that um, I think putting yourself into un, un, like unknown territory, you definitely think if you grew up on a reservation um, that, and even my dad's experience going to, into the Marines, that if you, um, you know, even going to MSU Bozeman was kind of like scary and around new people, different from like the way my community operates. But I, I, I think that was really important. And then also, um, you know, going on to, to grad school, but just like putting yourself out there um, into sort of unknown territory, I think is really important for growth. Um, I would say that it's really, uh, okay to fail and actually you should be failing a lot and have a system of recovery for failure. Um, but failure is really important in, in, in an art practice, trying to be an artist, um, because basically what that means is that you're experience, you're experimenting, you're trying things out, seeing what happens. Uh, I would also say um, that if you do decide to go and get an education in the arts, that um, no matter what they tell you or try to say is the way to become a successful artist, know that... Um, it's an individual path and it can happen um, in many different ways and that your path is your path um, and, a, and your path will work for you. So you don't have to like try to fit in a mold because um, oftentimes that, that just doesn't work for everybody. So I'd say that. Yeah. No, yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. So uh, what do you have going on right now? Um, so right now I'm, I'm doing a, um, a public art project with this nonprofit called Monument Labs. They're based out of Philly and they do a lot of work around monuments. And so they have been asked by the Trust, trust for the National Mall in D.C., to help bring art to the mall. And um, so I'm one of six artists to do one of the first sort of art initiatives for the mall. And what we were tasked with is that each of us are, were asked to make monument prototypes. And I was like, well, what's, what's a prototype? Um, and basically prototype to them is something that sort of breaks the sort of traditional idea of what a monument is. So sort of frees it from that um, to be different mediums or maybe sound could be a monument, that kind of thing. Um, So we've each uh, been given production budget to create our monument prototype that will then be exhibited um, on the mall later this summer. So I'm working with a glass 
um, fabricator here in town called Bullseye. And what I decided to focus on, well, the other part of this project is they each gave us a prompt to like work with. And the prompt was, uh, what stories have not been told on the mall? <laughs> I'm laughing because there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot of stories that have not been told on the mall. Um, and uh, they brought in the artists to do a site visit. So we all traveled to DC and walked around the mall. And that was the first time that I realized that, you know, the mall doesn't actually have any color. There's no monuments or sculptures that have color other than the natural material that they were made from. So was, I, I didn't, I was like, I wonder why I didn't pick that up, but I think it's just so ingrained in us what, you know, Washington DC looks like and is. And so what I've decided to focus on, on is treaties um, and the original ways in which Native leader sign treaties, which is oftentimes with an X or a thumbprint. And I was really interested in that. You know, I mean, an X can seem like anonymous. And a thumbprint can also seem anonymous, even though it's actually very specific to one person. So Mm -hmm. I, I kind of found that fascinating. So basically, my monument is going to be a giant red thumbprint that is made out of glass that is sort of like coming out of this granite piece, but within my thumbprint, it's, it's my thumbprint, um, are, uh, 50, I think 50 chiefs, Crow chiefs that had signed treaties with the U S government. And it will be, um, located on signers Island, which is in constitution gardens and signers Island is, Basically, all the signatures, it's a little, it's a little monument, a little island that has these uh, granite like squares. They look like kind of like headstones that have um, the signatures of all the signers of the Declaration of Independence. And it made me think, you know, like what's on the other side of them signing? They're basically, uh, you know, signing away all of our land. And what, you know, so that is not reflected uh, on Signers Island. So I wanted sort of a, uh, like a, a specific look at one community and uh, sort of the effect of, you know, what's, what's happening on both sides of those, those histories. Hmm. Well, that's, that's very fascinating. Um, where, where can the listener find your work? Where can they connect with what you're doing? Um, well, I have a couple publications. So um, I have a monograph with Aperture. It's my first monograph. It's called Delegation, and that's out. You can buy it on Amazon or on Aperture. I'm sure Aperture would appreciate you buying it from them. Um, and then I have a brand new book that will be coming out, I think, the end of April. Definitely will be available in May um, called Our Cider, Beluga. It's, uh, that's what crows say when they're, we're talking about us. Um, and so that will be out and it's uh, done with Radius. They're a book publisher in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And um, the Aperture monograph kind of focuses more on 
my photo base work and um, Beluga, our side, focuses on, it focuses on, it's very intimate book. I've interviewed my mom and dad in there and I've interviewed my sister. So there's sort of those conversations and then like two curators that I've worked with. Um, but basically it has uh, other media like sculpture and um, painting, that kind of stuff. So I'm excited. There are two different books. Um, and then as far as that, I'm, I think you can find me on the internet for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I have a website. I think that's a great place. Um, and we keep that pretty up to date with uh, news and what's happening. No, I, I do appreciate uh, the updated websites. Uh, oftentimes, I'll go to uh, other guests' website. And, uh, there's a couple that are have been updated in probably close to 20 years. <laughs> so. that, was, that was mine for sure until uh, I started uh, working on it. Um, and I think, you know, what happens too is like social media. A lot of artists are on Instagram and constantly updating that. But I think a lot of times these websites get neglected. True. Well, we'll put uh, links in the show notes for, for all of that. So, well, Wendy, thank you so much for this conversation and being here. This, this was really great having you here. Yes. Well, thank you and take care. And that does it for this episode of Five Plain Questions. I want to thank Wendy again for her time and sharing her story with us. As I said in the outro, uh, this this conversation was a long time coming. I, I When I started this podcast, I had a short list of folks that I really wanted to have on this, this program. And Wendy was part of that short list from the very beginning. I had become familiar with her satirical pieces that were book covers that were both hilarious and heartbreaking all at the same time. And as soon as I had seen that, I, I realized that this was someone that was both extremely intelligent and creative, but also really funny. And I, I just, I had to connect with her at some point for this podcast. And so I'm so glad that we were able to, to bring her on and to listen to her story and her perspective on this. Because I think her voice is so, so important in our community. And I'm just, I'm just excited to watch her in the coming decades and where she's going to go with the work that she's doing. I also encourage you to check out the new publications that are coming out. I have some of her books. They, they're they so good. It's it's worth having her works in your library for sure. And I, I look forward to the next book that's coming out soon. So, uh, Wendy, thank you so much for allowing me to have this time with you. And I really look forward to the next time we'll be interacting. I also want to thank you for joining us and spending your time listening to life is a very important story and perspective from our community. So please join us next week as we speak with another incredible person. I'm Joe Williams. You can find me on our Facebook page and our Instagram page at five plain questions podcast or at the plainsart.org website. There you can see our programming, our past videos and these podcasts. If you have a suggestion for me, for someone to interview, please look me up on Facebook or message me uh, at my email, which is jwilliams at plainsart.org. I would love to hear from you. Well, that's it. You take care and we will see you next week. This 
has been an Eleven Warrior Arts production.